0: Back in 2005, my college friend Brian and I decided to uh, take a snowboarding trip. Uh, I was attending the University of of Minnesota Crookston, which is in the northwest uh, top section of uh, Minnesota, and it was probably about 45 minutes from the Canadian border. So it's really cold up there, Uh, but we both you know, were wanting to escape the stresses of our college life, and we had a ton of discussions about actually setting this trip up and going. And so we were both passionate about snowboarding, and we decided to take this day trip together uh, on a Saturday. So we packed up my Pontiac Bonneville, and early on that Saturday morning, uh, we got our gear together, we got our boards, and we shoved them in my uh, Pontiac Bonneville. How many of you actually remember me driving that? That car around, it was like a 1995 green Pontiac Bonneville. And it was my second car only in my entire life, but I owned it for about 15 years. And so it was a huge blessing uh, to me. And so we packed up our gear and, and the snowboard in my Pontiac Bonneville, and we drove north two hours, okay? And so we were near the uh, Canadian border. We went a little bit west. And so we were going to a place called Frost Fire. And it was well-known around the area to be a great snowboarding place. And I always joke with Pastor Vicki, right? We're always uh, talking about the weather, how we went from one cold state to another cold state. Like, why couldn't we, like, go from a really cold state to maybe something a little bit warmer? But we went from Minnesota to New York. And we always joke about, you know, the trade-off that we made. And so Minnesota is way more cold than it is here in New York. But New York gets way more snow. And so there was a trade-off. And so I traded one cold state for another cold state. But I got to be honest with you, and I'm going to put this on the record, that I absolutely love this upstate New York weather way more than I do that cold, cold Minnesota weather. It's very common for you to turn the forecast on in Minnesota and see a seven-day forecast in the dead of winter, like in January, February, where it is consistently negative degree weather every day, like negative 20, negative 15, negative 22. And I know that we've had some cold weather here, but over there, it is just so much more worse. Just trust me on that. So Brian and I got uh, to Frost Fire about 10 a.m. on that Saturday morning. We snowboarded all morning and all afternoon into the evening. We skipped lunch, and on the last run of the day, we wanted to make sure that we were packed up and in the car before the actual sunset. set, and so on our last run, we snowboarded with all of the momentum. If you guys have ever been skiing or snowboarding, you probably know what I'm talking about, but on that last run, you tried to get as much momentum as possible, at least we did, to make it to kind of the parking lot. And so you're not stopping and getting on the chairlift. You just want to book it as far as you can, you know, to get to your car so you're not hiking through that snow with your awkward, you know, boots on. And so we made it, you know, almost to the parking lot, and it's about 5 p.m. And at this point, the sun is just starting to set. We make it as far as we can on our snowboards, and I get out, and I start the car. start getting it warmed up, and um, immediately when I started the car... I started seeing snowflakes. It was a clear day all day. And some snowflakes started coming down, some flurries and stuff. And as we packed up and got our shoes on and stuff, it started coming down a little bit harder. We put it in drive. I hit the highway. I start going south, and it is snowing harder and harder. And harder. My windshield wipers are coming on now at this point, trying to get that snow off. And Brian and I were like looking at each other like we had no inclination to check the weather report, you know. We didn't we didn't think that far ahead. I mean, we were college students, we had other things that were priorities on our list, like having a great day and not worrying about the weather. And so it's snowing and snowing and snowing. And you know what? It's getting darker and darker and darker with more snow. And so my my headlights go on and How many of you have driven in some crazy snow? I'm talking to Central New Yorkers. Of course you have. You know what happens when you turn the headlights on, right? When it's snowing really heavy. What happens? It is Yeah, it's so hard to see the visibility gets like worse and worse and it's not even really worth it at that point to kind of turn on your headlights Except for other people's safety and lives. That would be great But we continued driving and the snowfall is just heavier and you know The most frustrating part of that whole thing was the visibility issue It was like uh, The star wars movie where you're like going in hyperdrive and you've got like all these stars coming your way and it's a big blur And it was just a mess and so I was only going like 25 to 30 miles an hour at this point. I couldn't get much faster. And the, the, the great thing is, if I have to say something great about this trip, it was the fact that in northern Minnesota, everything is so flat and so straight. So these highways are set up for you, right? You don't really have any like, even gradual turns really don't exist. It's just a straight shot almost. And so the way that I was guiding my car was by the signs on the side of the road that's where I knew I was going the road was completely covered in snow it was so desolate that there wasn't any other like tire tracks on the road and so I would be looking at the signs and so we're about halfway through the drive and Brian says something sarcastic to me because both of my hands are gripping the steering wheel and I'm not letting go and he happens to say hey bro you want me to take over for you I'm like, no, I don't want you to take over for me. But as politely as I could say, I turned him down. I was like, I don't want to put my life in your hands. You know, I really wanted to say it so sarcastically and condescendingly to him, but, but I didn't. And so uh, we were driving back to the University of Minnesota Crookston at this point, And uh, I start to see a sign. I start seeing a sign that says, welcome to Crookston. And I was so happy. And the two-hour drive that it took to go up north turned into a five-hour drive back down to the University of minnesota Crookson because we were going so slow. Brian wanted me to drop him off in front of his dorm. So I pulled up to his building, put the car in park, right? And right when that happens, my hand releases from the steering wheel. And at that point, I felt such a sharp pain in my hand. And Brian looks at me, and he's like, dude, your hand is white. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, look at your hand. And I looked at it. I had no blood in my hand because I was gripping the steering wheel so tight. I let go of the other one, causing me pain. And it caused so much pain that I actually kind of let out a loud shriek, you know? And he's like, Jason, he's like, you were holding on to that steering wheel like it was going to save your life. And for us central New Yorkers, we know what white knuckle driving is, right? For five hours, my hands were so uh, tight around that steering wheel that I was cutting off the blood circulation to my fingers. I was causing my body pain. I was inflicting harm upon it. And he says, you were holding on to that steering wheel like it was saving your life. And I obviously didn't take my steering wheel, you know, off of my car and carry it around with me because I was holding it so tightly. But for those five hours, I didn't want to let go of the wheel and I didn't even connect the dots. I had no idea that I was actually doing that. You know, many of us have tendency hold on to things that, you know, we hold dear to our hearts. Sometimes they bring us a a sense of safety and security. And for some of you, clinging maybe to a a tangible item uh, may not bring you a sense of that safety or security in your life, but we all have something or someone, don't we? We all have something or someone that we look to to provide us with that feeling. Today, we're going to see in the Bible that it says something really uh, interesting about the things that we hold dear, the things that we hold tightly to, and the things that we cling to. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, is there anything in this world that you're holding to so tightly to save your life or give your life meaning? This morning, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to the book or the gospel of Mark, Chapter 10, and we're going to be taking a look at verses 17 through 27. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. This, is, this story that we're going to read is commonly referred to as the rich man in the kingdom. Some say the young rich man in the kingdom. And there are parallel versions of this story in the gospel books of Matthew and then Luke as well. So I'm going to read this all out here. It'll also be up on the projector. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept since my youth. And Jesus looking at him, Amen, amen. So at the beginning here of chapter 10, Jesus enters Judea and he's traveling around. This is kind of in the height of his uh, three-year ministry here. He's ministering to all sorts of people. All kinds of people were coming up to Jesus, right? In crowds and droves. Uh, People were coming up to him like religious leaders. Children were coming up to him, families. People challenging him, wanting to question him, catch him in a lie, things like that. They were flocking to him, and each of them looking for something specific. They all had an agenda, didn't they? They all just didn't want to come up to Jesus and just say, hey, how you doing, bro? That type of stuff. They each had an agenda. And so some of them were seeking healing. Some of them were seeking direction. Maybe some of them were seeking some sort of a truth or a blessing. And so Jesus, he would address their needs. He wanted to bless them. He wanted to oblige them because he was compassionate, he was loving, and he was kind. But not only did he meet like their you know, physical needs or emotional or spiritual needs, he wanted to meet their deepest needs. He knew things below the surface about them. He had a knowledge of them already before they even met, right? Jesus just knew. And so he wanted to minister to them beyond, beyond their agenda, beyond what they thought that they needed, which brings us to the rich man, right? Many Bible scholars believe that the rich man here was some sort of a religious lay leader, not not necessarily a Pharisee, but some sort of a religious lay leader, maybe the son of a Pharisee. And it's very clear to us what the rich man's struggle was, right? It was very clear. The thing that he held tightly to were his possessions, his wealth. He didn't want to let go of them. And so what this morning we're going to explore the scripture in order to avoid, right? The same sad outcome as the rich young man. We're going to explore scripture in order to avoid the same sad outcome as the rich young man. So I'm going to offer up three points to you if you're taking notes. And here's the first point. The first point is honor God. There is only enough room to honor one God in your life. There is only enough room for one God in your life. The Bible is clear in many other places about having no other gods before who? God. There's no room for it. In Genesis 20, verses two through four, the Lord gives this first command. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And this is taken, obviously, from the Ten Commandments. Many of us, even myself included, I want to be honest with you. I used to sometimes have the idea, depending on what was going on in my life, that maybe God sometimes was angry at me. Let's be honest. How many of you have actually felt that before, right? It's something that we all struggle with. I mean, our flesh tells us that people get mad when we do wrong, right? And so it's not uncommon for us to actually feel that when, you know, we do something wrong and and sin in our life, you know. And so I've actually felt that, you know, maybe God's angry. Maybe he wants to be harsh with me. But listen, guys, listen up. These Ten Commandments were given by God to what? They were to, to protect us and to bless us. And so one thing to keep in mind as we're kind of going through this scripture together, as we're navigating through Mark chapter 10 and reading about the rich young man and, and the encounter that he had with Jesus, one thing that I want us to put in the very like, forefront of our mind as we're reading, you know, reading along in this scripture is that we need to look at this scripture with a lens of love. We need to see this. With love. And not just Mark chapter 10, but the whole entire Bible. All of God's word, we should be reading it through the lens of love. And so in Mark chapter 10, we see that Jesus tells him what it will cost the rich young man to enter the kingdom of God. And after the rich man's disappointing response, um, it says that Jesus looked at him, right? And what does it say after that? Jesus looked at him and loved. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to well up with rage. He didn't want to rain down fire and brimstone upon him. No, Jesus was compelled. Jesus was moved because he loved him, because he had compassion. He felt that for this young man, you know? He wasn't frustrated with him. He looked at him through the lens of love. A few nights ago, I'd like to share a story with you. A few nights ago, I had an opportunity to share Christ with a young lady, and she had a lot of questions about Jesus. She had a lot of good questions, and I answered them, you know, through, through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit speaking through me the best as I could. And, you know, she had a general sense of who Jesus was. She knew, you know, that, that he uh, is the Son of God, but she had a lot of other skewed ideas and thoughts about why Jesus you know, came and, and who he, who he says he was. And there was a lot of weird things that were thrown up like red flags. And I'm like, oh my goodness, she is just, you know, I, I don't even know where she heard these things from, but they were some really like deceptive lies about Jesus. And so I told her, you know, I said, look, the Lord looks at your heart. The Lord doesn't look at the outside of parents because she had struggles with her identity. And I shared with her the truth of the gospel, and their eyes started to light up. And I shared with her the truth that Jesus, you know, died for her sins. And I told her that God loves her unconditionally and would accept her as she is. But to follow Jesus and then to align herself with God's word, she would also have to surrender the thing that she had been struggling with. And I shared this story because there are many things that keep us from a right relationship with God, from entering the kingdom of God. And so the young lady that I was talking with was hoping that she could still cling to that lifestyle, still cling to that identity that she had. And she wanted to still cling to that, but then also still wanted to what? Follow Christ at the same time. And, and just like the rich man was disappointed at following uh, Jesus, what that would cost him, he was disappointed in that, so was this young lady as well. And so I want to talk about this. I want, to, I want to see, what does honoring God look like? What does it look like? The rich man was simply trying to follow the commandments of the Lord. Jesus knew the heart of this young man. He knew that he had a knowledge of his teachings already. So the rich man was trying to prove a point to Jesus, right? He was saying, listen, Jesus, I've obeyed all of your commandments. I have kept these, you know, since I was a young boy, he says, and so honoring God according to the rich man was what? It was, it, was, uh, it was following the rules and having his priorities straight. But Jesus was trying to teach him otherwise. The man thought that he had kept all these commandments that Jesus stated and correctly understood you know, that he lacked something. The rich man was saying, Jesus, I have done all. I have kept these rules, but still there was something prodding at him. There was still something inside of him telling him that he lacked something. Why else would he ask Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to enter the kingdom of God? He knew something was wrong. He lacked one good deed. The translation there actually for deed means thing. He lacked one good thing from which all other good things flow, which is a heartfelt devotion to god a heartfelt devotion to god honoring god is simply just that it's having him at the center of your life putting nothing above loyalty to him god here is reminding us all to examine whether we have depended on anything more than jesus for our satisfaction and hope so point number 1 here is honor god the second point i want to make this morning is worldly or excuse me is humble yourself humble yourself. First one, honor God. Second, humble yourself. Worldly riches and success cannot satisfy your deepest need, nor can social approval or even acceptance. That cannot satisfy our deepest need. In our society today, there are many things that can easily elevate, that we can easily elevate above, you know, that position of God in our relationship with Jesus. Even things that are viewed as good, you know, have the potential to be extremely detrimental to us if they're given more of our attention or love than we give the Lord Jesus. Things like relationships, families, our jobs, children, our education, even our physical bodies, these things that we cling to, we can elevate above the position that Jesus should be taking. Sometimes it's hard for me to, you know, part with my stuff too, and it happens in my household a lot with um, <clears throat> Pastor Vicki. And uh, she sometimes grabs something of ours that belongs to both of us, and she'll find it because how... You guys know that Pastor Vicki loves to organize, right? Pastor Vicki does not like clutter. She likes organization. She likes things in their place. And when one thing comes into the home and starts taking up space of other things, she'll ask, Hey, honey, do you use that? And sometimes I'll reply... Um, not recently, or no, I haven't used it. And so she'll grab it and say, Have you used this in the last month? And if the, if the answer is no, she'll ask, Can I get rid of it? And so these things I have a tough time letting go of. Such, you know, like an example would be we received a beautiful stainless steel countertop pasta maker. It's a crank handle, right? And we actually received it for our wedding, one of our wedding gifts. And so this thing is like nine years old, but it's still brand new in the box beneath the kitchen cupboard, all the way in the back. And she recently wanted to get something from the senior garage sale. And uh, I said, honey, do we have you know, room for that? And she's like, well, there is that you know pasta machine that you haven't used. Can I get rid of it? And of course I don't want her to get rid of it because I want to make pasta someday. And I think I'm going to do it. So I, you know, cried and like whined and like tried to like barter with her. Like maybe you can get rid of something else, but I want that pasta maker still. It's super shiny. Like it is really nice. (laughs) So here's the thing. God does not call all people everywhere to give everything they have and sell and then give to the poor, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't call everyone to do that but he did it with the rich young man, right? Here's the thing. God does ask everyone though to put nothing above loyalty to him. Do you hear what I'm saying? God doesn't call everybody everywhere to sell all all of what they own and have to give to the poor, but God does call everybody everywhere to not put anything above loyalty to him, okay? Okay. God uses this example of this young man to remind us, to examine whether we have depended on anything more than Jesus for our satisfaction and hope. And so throughout the Gospels, Jesus identifies greed, right? He talks about greed a lot, uh, the root, you know, money being the root of all evil. And, and greed here, he's teaching that hindrance uh, to embracing the Gospel. So Jesus identifies greed as a hindrance to embracing the Gospel. And in contrast, a willingness to give up everything to follow him as a true sign of discipleship. It is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because riches and, and, and finances and money can easily, so easily, take that place of loyalty above God in one's life. And this is why when Jesus talked about how impossible that is to serve two masters, the two masters mentioned were what? God and money. Placing money before God explains also why Judas, what, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus recognized that the best way for one to control money rather than be controlled by it was to give it away. And the best way to do this as a follower of Jesus is to help those in need and give to the poor. But the Lord also knows our hearts. He sees that when it's done with a joyous motivation, with a genuine heart motivation of what Jesus has done for us sinners because we are in need of a Savior. It's a joyous, happy motivation. When Jesus tells the rich young man that he has to give up all that he owns, all that he has gained and taken inside of his you know, household and to him, he knew that um, this man's heart was going to sink he knew that his face would fall, that the rich young man would become extremely disappointed and sad because he didn't want to give up his great wealth. He wanted to cling to it tightly. He wanted to hold on to it with everything that he had. And he wasn't willing to trade it up or to give it up for Jesus. And Jesus here tells his disciples after that, he says, how hard is it to enter, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? And he says, it is easier for a, here it is, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Something that I'd like to just, you know, talk about this morning is maybe something that you may have come across in like your Bible studies, or maybe you've read like an online blog about this, but a popular interpretation for what Jesus is talking about, like a parable of a camel going through the eye of a needle, I wanted to uh, maybe just glean or share some wisdom so that you guys can glean some insight to this. But many scholars and even some preachers and teachers have studied this text out and they actually have taught that this uh, eye eye of the needle um, was a gate in Jerusalem. And some, some say that what happened was, is that there were a lot of gates around Jerusalem and that if you missed the time to go in, that there was this other gate and it was a smaller gate. And it was called the Eye of the Needle. And what happens is, and this is all kind of like a, a myth, it could be a legend because there's no scientific proof or archeological evidence supporting this. But what the, the story goes is that when you miss the entrance of the gates, that you can take this smaller gate entrance. But what happens is the owner, the rider, has to get off the camel because it's so small. And the camel has to get down on its knees and crawl through and squeeze through this smaller gate And so there's something to be said, though, for this. There is some sort of truth that we can glean from this story. You know, it's that we can pull from this the position that we have to enter into Jerusalem, enter into the kingdom with, right? We have to humble ourselves. We need to, you know, humble ourselves in humility and get down lower. We need to uh, position ourselves to enter the kingdom of God. So the first point was... Honor God. The second point is humble yourself. And the third point this morning is hope in Christ. Hope in Christ. What is impossible with us, God did for us. Let me say that again. What is impossible with us, God did for us. We're going to take a look at verses 26 through 27 for this. And they were exceedingly, exceedingly astonished. And said to him, these are his disciples talking to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. Jesus here is trying to hit home at the fact that entering the kingdom of God, which is, you know, our salvation is the only poss- is only possible by the grace of God. We cannot buy our way into heaven, and it is not accomplished by anything that we do or have done, right? Our hope and our trust is in Christ alone. The God of the Bible has always made a way for his people when they've walked away and gone against his will and instruction, right? We read this over and over and over in the Bible. When Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt to the land that they were promised uh, to them, they came upon the Red Sea, right? Right? And they were pinned between the enemies and and a body of water behind them. And God made a way for them across it. Not only did God destroy their enemy, right? But at the same time, they didn't have to lift a finger against them. God took care of it all. He parted the waters, destroyed the army, and the Israelites didn't have to do a thing, right? God made a way. What was impossible with man was what? Possible with God. And at the beginning of creation, when the Lord created Adam and Eve, God gave specific instructions you know, for them, um, and they were disobeyed. Man disobeyed God. But did God leave us to perish in our sin? No. He made a way for us where there was no way. A punishment was what we deserved. We actually deserved to die, but God did the impossible. What was impossible for man, God did for us because he loves us. If Jesus asked the man to give his possessions away, don't you think that he would have provided man the grace and strength he needed to do so? In verse 23, Jesus says, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? But then he turns around and says, verse 27, with God, all things are possible. God is so loving. He is so kind. And he made a way for us despite our flaws He made a way for us despite our failures. God made a way for us despite our falls. God made a way. And he can make a way in your life and in my life. And we thank the Heavenly Father for always protecting us and delivering us when things seem impossible in our life. Amen. He is our deliverer. He is our hope. He is our redeemer. Hope in Christ. Put all of your hope in Christ alone. We've talked about the rich young man's struggle with giving up his wealth, the thing that he clung to for security, and the things that we might value or hold tight to. And so for this last item I want to offer up for you guys as we start to close, this message is this. Where do we find the power to actually change? Where is it that we turn to for the power to actually change. I've talked about this in some other sermons and I speak about it frequently and, and inside out with the youth group. You know, we cannot do things on our own strength. It is absolutely setting us up for failure to fall on our face. So where is it that you turn to for, to gain the actual power to change? Where is it that you turn to to actually release the grip on the things that you love and hold so dear and maybe even hold in a position above Christ? I want to pose that question to you guys this morning. Where do you find the power to actually change? Let the Holy Spirit start revealing that to you. In this story, the rich young man was seeking eternal life, right? He was. He was asking Jesus all about it. He was assuming that he needed to do something. The rich young man was thinking, maybe I need to accomplish something. There is something more than just obeying that I need to do to enter into eternal life. He assumed that Jesus would know what that something was. Jesus Jesus immediately shifted the conversation there from what an individual must do to have eternal life to the God who gives eternal life. Let me say that again. Jesus immediately shifted the conversation from what an individual must do to gain eternal life to the one who gives eternal life. He needed to take his eyes off of what must I accomplish to the one who accomplished it all. He needed to just take his focus off and release what he was holding on to so that he could grab a hold of Christ. Amen. Jesus's question encouraged the young man to think about the relationship between Jesus and God. And if the rich young man had been paying attention enough to Jesus's teachings and his ministry, it would have been so clear to him that Jesus himself was God. All of scripture points to Jesus. All of scripture exists to reveal Jesus. Jesus. The saddest part of this story, at least for me, and I'm sure if you keep reading and read it over again, you'll know what it is too. When the young rich man turns away and doesn't surrender his wealth and life to live with Christ. But his sad moment could be our joy-filled moment. The story didn't have to end like that for the rich young man, did he? He could have let go and clung to Christ. He could have released his tight grasp upon his riches and held fast to Christ. He could have done that, but the saddest part was that he turned his back. He put his head down, and he became extremely disappointed and sad because he knew the great wealth that he had, but he wasn't willing to give it up for Jesus. Jesus tells the young man, you know, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And so, what I want to do here right now is we're closing this message. I'd like for you to close your eyes. I want to take a moment here and I want to personalize this text. I want you to personalize this text. Jesus tells that young man, Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he tells the man that you'll have treasure. In heaven, if you let go of this, if you sell your possessions and give to the poor. And at this, the man's face fell, for he had great wealth. Now, here's where I want you to personalize this text. Because God is speaking to each one of us right now through the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to ask right now, Holy Spirit, please help us. Please enter into us, God. Look in our hearts Help us to determine this question. Holy Spirit, we love you. Here's the question. What would be the thing in your life that if Jesus asked you to give it up, it would make your face fall? Your heart sink in disappointment? If Jesus asked you to give this thing up, would it cause your hearts to sink in your face to fall in disappointment would it hurt I'm going to give us just a few moments to pray on that thank you God